Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining us on the podcast today is Denise Chisholm, Director of Quantitative Market Strategy. She speaks with host Pamela Ritchie about productivity and unit labor costs, higher wages and smaller margins misconceptions, as well as the global impact of AI. Denise says unit labor costs is a key variable impacting the stock market right now. She says there has been an abrupt normalization. One of the biggest concerns in the market is not goods costs because goods have been in deflation, but it's the middle part driven by wage growth. And in regards to the stickiness of wages, she says what it actually means is that it's good for profit margins on a go-forward basis. Denise also talks about the miracle aspect of productivity. She says two major factors have contributed to the current situation. AI is a game changer for productivity in software and computers, and COVID created a positive productivity shock. This in turn generated a positive outlook for productivity cycles and their impact on the stock market. This podcast was recorded on November 24th, 2023. into the productivity side of things, I think you've been looking at most recently, or one of the most recent, is, is the unit labor costs. Where is the normalization there that we're seeing? Yes, and it's been an abrupt normalization. I think one of the biggest concerns in the market, and the Fed has really articulated it, is not goods costs, because goods have been in deflation or disinflation, borderline deflation, and not really the shelter component of cost because they know and we know that that's deeply lagging. But there's this middle part that they are concerned about driven by wage growth. So wages, the stickiness of inflation in, in that in that perspective has been a real concern. And I think the best way to think about that as the way that it impacts the stock market is really unit labor costs is the main variable to watch. And that came out recently and we saw a very, very sharp deceleration, right? So unit labor costs are just the compensation costs per unit of output, right? So you've got two things. Now, wage inflation has decelerated, but not dramatically. The unit labor costs have decelerated very dramatically. Now we're right back into that complete zone. And again, you can see the charts on my LinkedIn, the zone we've been in since the early 90s. And this doesn't look anything like the 60s, 70s, and 80s, which were a complete upward momentum of unit labor costs. So for those concerned about that stickiness of wages, what that actually means is good for profit margins on a go-forward basis. When you look at the history of unit labor costs, that's really been the tie-in to see what happens over the next year with profits. And I actually think it's one of the biggest drivers of why earnings growth could be better than expected in 2024. And it's very different from what investors are expecting. It's very different from what investors are expecting. We, we keep thinking higher wages, smaller margins. And that that's that is sticky too, that, that type of thought. Why, why do we go there? Right, the answer is in productivity, and you highlighted that. And I think that this deterioration in unit labor costs or deceleration in unit labor costs is very unique historically because it's the sharpest deceleration, and I've said this about inflation too, the sharpest deceleration without anybody losing their jobs. So this is a rare situation, and it is all around the very strong inflection in productivity. Now, we do not know if this will continue, but I will tell you that the inflection we've seen typically has momentum. So 
or at least from a forward look perspective of into 2024, usually when you see a productivity spark like this, it tends to have a continuation into that next year. Now, this is key because I think the narrative has gotten a lot of airtime on well, it's very different this time. We've never invested with sticky inflation. We've never invested with interest rates this high. We've never invested like this since the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But what we haven't also invested in is a productivity cycle. So to the extent that productivity is actually higher for longer, which we'll see uh, right now, there's been a positive inflection. We haven't seen anything like that since the 90s. And that would be the bullish offset to all the differences this cycle. So there are a lot of differences, and we can see which differences are meaningful in the stock market. What I would say is the differences in terms of labor costs are not really an issue with my work because, you know, labor costs have now decelerated back into a range. And all the positives associated with that, with what is different in terms of productivity, tends to be a bullish signal. And it all comes back to the fact that this is a really strong case for earnings. And remember, Earnings in some ways can be strong regardless of GDP. That correlation really broke down in the early 2000s. So if you say that, well, GDP is likely to be modest and let's call it between two and three and a half percent, and that's not enough, you can actually get much stronger earnings growth for that GDP growth when you look back historically and it's all hinged around operating margins. That is fascinating. Two questions out of that. One, what does a productivity cycle look like, fit with, is it, does it correlate to something? And second, so is this a win for the Fed on the labor policy side of things that it needs to do? Yes. So what it looks like, a productivity cycle essentially means that you go faster with less inflation. And that's something, again, that we have not seen. We've seen- That's the opposite of stagflation. Sorry to interrupt, but isn't that kind of the opposite of stagflation? That is a great way to put it. That is exactly what it is. And it is like you would say that it's the perfect Goldilocks. I mean, there are a lot of Goldilocks, right? Recessions are rare. So I always say that Goldilocks actually has the highest odds. But when you think about it, yes, this is the ultimate form of Goldilocks, the opposite of stagflation, where you can generate above average growth or below average unemployment, right, for less inflation. So this would be a win for the Fed in terms of what you saw was a rebalancing of the labor market, which is less inflationary as job openings have come down um, to quell any wage inflation. So I think that, yes, I think that the, uh, the Fed didn't really engineer it. Like you, I, you know that I always say that the Fed follows the cycle rather than creates it, but they waited long enough for the labor market to come into balance. And I say waited long enough because as much as they say, you know, our target is still 2%, they're not trying to get it to 2% tomorrow or yesterday, right? The 2% target still exists out in 2025. So it is, we've had, it doesn't feel like it because of the hawkish rhetoric, but we have had a very patient Fed. So, so you think it's more realistic based on everything that you look at, that 2% is something that we hit in 2025, perhaps. It's it maybe even earlier to that extent. I mean, when you sort of decompose inflation, again, if you take out that shelter component, which I won't say is flawed, but certainly lagged, and if we know that that's coming down over time, everything else, so overall CPI, X shelter, is now at a run rate of 1.5%, and it has been below 2% five months. This, so this tells you that the rest of the trajectory is kind of there. And if that unit labor cost falls into line in terms of wages not being as big a concern because productivity is picking up, 
now you've got all three segments lined up. So all goods and everything else, X that weird, you know, wage component being positive. And then you have the wage component being as less of an issue because of unit labor costs. And then you have the shelter, which we know is lagged, which is probably going to cause a disinflationary force. You can roll this out over the course of the next six months even and potentially get closer to 2%. Okay. Oh my gosh, that's so fascinating. You and I spoke a little while earlier and um, productivity is something we're, we're kind of not used to. And, and you were introducing it as something that, you know, we have seen perhaps in the 90s, but it's not it's not been around all every decade. There's sort of a, a miracle aspect to it. I mean, I guess it's always the goal, but it seems to be quite elusive. So I, I wonder if you could just kind of dig into that for us of this like, oh, we made it here. There's a, a little bit of a, a miracle element to it. Yes, there is. I mean, it hasn't, it's usually not sustained and it was never as sustained as it was in, in the 1990s. And again, this is quite the opposite of what I would call the 70s and 80s, where you saw productivity declines and you even saw productivity declines or decelerations, I should say, in the 60s, which was a little bit of a flag, right? There is much of an issue. Now we can debate about the, the why, but I think that there are some things sort of coming together to suggest that this might actually be the start of a productivity cycle. Maybe it won't be as robust as the 1990s, but maybe it's a little more durable than anything we've seen in the last decade of our investment career. And I would highlight two things to the potential of the why, and one is AI right, that sort of groundbreaking new technology that we're already starting to hear. And I say we by equity research and fidelity, my brethren, that listens to companies saying it's made our workforce coders specifically so much more productive. So we're not seeing it be a game changer for the entire economy yet, but we are seeing it be a game changer for productivity in software uh, and computers. So I think that there's there's we're seeing glimmers of that. And the second thing is, I think that we might look back on COVID and think of it more as a positive productivity shock as well. So, you know, I think that there is something to be said, despite the fact of what the CEOs say, there is something to be said about gaining productivity out of your workforce with the lack of commute, let's call it a quarter, half, maybe even three quarters of the time. So we might be starting to see above trend productivity based on the shift to work from home and maybe even the additional labor force that you can have from women uh, that, that we sort of stalled out over the course of the last cycle. So I think that they, that could change a lot. You know, again, we focus on the negatives over the next 10 years. What could be the problems, right? The problems are sticky inflation. The problems are, you know, a hawkish Fed. Uh, the problems might be around geopolitics. But let's also think about what could be different around productivity and then tie that specifically to the stock market. And productivity cycles have been quite bullish for returns, quite bullish for returns. And it's all around that fact that because you can have disinflation with higher than expected growth and because of that higher than expected margin. So that means that your profit margin cycle to cycle are likely higher. And that means that earnings can be much stronger with what you see than what you see in GDP growth. Okay. So take this, if you don't mind, it might be a bit of a, a rough pivot, but, but let's just try. This AI is at the moment an incredibly interesting theme for, for American companies, essentially. Is there a rollout globally? Probably, ultimately, that's coming. But 
can you see regionally where this is going to take hold from what CEOs are saying, from the earnings calls, from, I mean, where does this at the moment, the productivity piece of what we're talking about become regional in your mind or does it? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, at the moment, it is a U.S. I don't want to say it's an entirely U.S. phenomenon, but as it relates to, again, from an investment perspective, it's really related to technology and technology is dominant in the United States. So from a regional investing perspective, I think it starts in the U.S. and we'll see. I think that this is the early stages of what could be a productivity cycle, but we'll have to see how it plays out. And I think that what what happens in the United States will give people a clue as to how this evolves into a global phenomenon or not. And while this is evolving, while productivity is is perhaps doing what it's doing, we're watching unit labor costs. But how does the recessionary piece of it either get closer or just get written out of the storybook for now? Yeah, it's always a for now. There will always be a recession. A recession will happen at some point. But I think that if you say delayed, not canceled, I think it's more in the delayed, not canceled column. So what this allows is that corporations, remember, I mean, the layoffs don't happen just by some sort of magic that the economy collapses on itself. But it usually is around the fact that corporations feel stress on their profit margins and want to lay off workers to bolster those margins to get better earnings growth, especially in the public markets. But what this productivity cycle might allow that might allow to happen is you can retain your workforce because they are more productive, even at the wages you pay and still generate above average operating margin. So this allows for the lower unemployment rate for longer. Again, it's not a we will never have a recession again, but it likely gives you some scope for as long as productivity is advancing. I think that, it, you know, and you can look at this historically, you have lower and lower probabilities of a recession. Right. So those two things are inversely correlated, meaning that the more productivity accelerates, the less likely you are to see the unemployment rate spike. Not 100 percent. Right. Can't guarantee 100 percent. But again, there's a there's a correlation there. And, and it sounds like that's a, a more stable floor to stand on. And, and we can for things like shocks. Right. I mean, you've told us before that it's almost always a shock of some sort that will ultimately spin you into a recession. Is, is that a firmer floor to, to be standing on economically to, to ward off shock? Absolutely. You've become less vulnerable. I mean, I think that there, there are one thing that we have going for us, which, again, you can see in the historic probabilities is real wage growth is finally positive right, for the first time in 22 months. That, if you look out over the course of the year, is usually coincident with a much, a very significant decline in recessionary odds. Again, not zero, because it usually comes from a shock, but it does mean that you can withstand more of a shock than you could if real earnings growth was negative. The same is true in terms of productivity. If productivity is accelerating, it decreases your odds of a recession in the sense that it makes you less vulnerable to those shocks. So again, we're not necessarily there yet because you could argue that we're just bouncing off trend in terms of productivity after a steep acceleration during the pandemic and then a steep deceleration during the recovery of the pandemic. And now we're sort of reaccelerating. So it is early. It's nascent stages. But like I said, when you see an inflection like this, usually it has a continuation pattern over the course of a year. And usually that's positive, again, from the vulnerability of your economy, which makes shocks less likely to tip you into a recession. And, and the shocks, I mean, we all know the history of the oil shocks, 
there have been ge geopolitical shocks. I think we spoke a couple of weeks ago just about whether some of the geopolitical risk it's, it's a harsh way of looking at it, but we're just sort of looking at the market reactions and, and function that some of the geopolitical risk maybe had been taken out. We'd seen things take a step down in reaction to, I mean, wars going on in the Middle East. So is there something to that, that some of the shock potential has actually been taken out of the market? It definitely could be. I mean, look, we've talked before about how tricky it is to tie geopolitics to returns in the S&P 500. It doesn't really make any sense. I mean, even when you look back to World War II, the stock market generated 6% returns, total returns from 1938 to 1945, you know, I think was the end. So uh, again, I think that as much as we want to focus on geopolitics is, okay, what is different this time? And what could this mean? It's very difficult to tie it at all, especially to overall stock market returns. And part of the reason behind that is because the more visible geopolitical risks are, the more likely it is to be discounted. This is the same argument that we see come up over and over again. Remember, I discussed this early part in the in, earlier in the year when I said that the more visible it is that the unemployment rate declines, if you've seen a decline in leading indicators, the more likely it is that the stock market actually goes up in your face anyway. And the same is very true of geopolitical risks. So I think to the extent that you constantly hear people say, this is very different, the coming decade is going to be very different from the last decade because this decade is going to be defined by geopolitical risks because we've already seen its spark with Russia and Ukraine and now war in the Middle East. I think that the more you hear that, the more visible it is, the more likely it's to be discounted. And you can see that in the indicators, right? So valuation spreads have remained high. Uncertainty has remained high. These are two bullish indicators you actually look at. And credit spreads are saying, oh, you know, by the way, that this is not as big of an issue as you might think. And oh, by the way, crude oil has been well behaved. So it might actually translate to, well, maybe the supply story is a little bit different than you might think as a knee-jerk reaction. And to what extent is the energy security story really of the last year and a bit now? This is more to the beginning of the, of the Ukraine more and how how the world scrambled to figure out where they were on the energy security sliding scale, essentially. Do we also sort of know that now? I mean, the energy security, meaning also the oil prices often expressed, is a known unknown? I think it's starting to get known that the supply story is dramatically different. I think even despite, uh, you know, maybe a government policy shift towards clean energy, what you've seen is we're still net exporters in the United States. That's very different right. than anything we experienced in history, right? So again, history can tell you what's similar and history can tell you what's different. And that is definitely different. So when you look at U.S. crude oil production, we're almost back to, you know, uh, post-pandemic highs. And yes, it's on lower rigs. And why is it on lower rigs? Because you've seen increased productivity. So the supply story and the energy security story along with it is dramatically different, such that the impact of crude oil has to be a lot bigger to create that shock. And I think that that's what the market is figuring out. And again, back to the OPEC can only control so much. And when you backtest OPEC cuts, what you'll find is they're actually not very predictive, certainly not for energy stocks, and they're less predictive of crude oil than you would think. And it's in part because, one, historically, they've cheated. Maybe they're cheating less than they have, but historically, at least, that they cheat. And partly because of the fact that the stock, the market is smart enough to know that when they cut, those barrels can come back on. 
at some point, which gives you a, a ceiling of what crude oil can can do. So when the U.S. is continuing to produce, when inventories, especially in gasoline, are actually rising, not falling, and when OPEC is continually cutting, this is actually a setup for a more muted commodity reaction than anything else. So I think it's a little bit of the perfect storm with geopolitical the conflict actually tipping you to what maybe is already priced into the market. That is beyond fascinating. Let's get to sectors and taking a look at, given everything that's been said here, where you think, obviously there's there's reason to be optimistic. We said in the introduction, there's an optimism there. There's a bullishness there. Take us through the sectors that could benefit the most. Yeah, on the top three, I would say absolutely no differences. Technology looks like leadership to me. It's likely to be the first to emerge from the earnings recession that we are saw or currently seeing, depending on how you calculate the data. And I think that the run-up in technology stocks is usually predictive of the fact that earnings are going to come through. So I think that they are tipping their hand at the end of the earnings recession, and they are likely the sector that leads us out. I do think that that earnings growth will show up in consumer discretionary as well, in part because there's a catalyst in terms of real income, and in part because of the fact that you've actually already seen it in revisions. Revisions have been quite positive in consumer discretionary. What hasn't been quite positive is valuation. So we've recompressed valuation levels on a relative basis, back down to pandemic lows on an equal-weighted basis, less so from a cap-weighted perspective. But I think all it did in my work is to shift the risk-reward more positive. So I think technology and consumer discretionary are likely leadership. And then I think followed by industrials. And I'm going to add in, and I talk about it off and on, financials as well. I think that there are many investors that are afraid to own financials. I do understand that. I think about it the risk the opposite way. Again, my objective is total return. I view not owning financials as a pretty big risk. When you look at the absolute levels in terms of price to book, we're back down to what we saw in the financial crisis and the pandemic around the 70s and 80s. So you're around that low on absolute, let alone relative basis, which is much cheaper than we saw that we were in the global, in the great financial crisis. You add that with the potential for Fed cuts next year, and I'm happy to talk about that. I think that you need to Let's be open that. to that as, a, as, a, as an investor. And then the fact that if they cut, the yield curve might uninvert. That could actually be a perfect storm for financials. And when I study history, when financials work, there aren't a lot of sectors that keep up with them. So I call them like the statistical pain trade, which means that you need to have some exposure so that you don't get run over. Wow, that is fascinating. Okay, so let's talk about the cuts. Been a lot said about the market getting a little too optimistic. Okay, perhaps the Fed is on on hold. You'll tell us one way or the other. The cuts are are early in 2024, according to uh, what's being priced in. Is is that optimistic? Is that over their skis? Yeah, I think they keep shifting around. So I, yeah. it's very important for the bond market in terms of the when. It's less important for the equity market in terms of when. And it's funny, when you look at the data going back to the 60s and you take all the rolling instances of when the Fed's hiking or cutting, I always say that it's a little bit more advantageous for them to be hiking, but they're really close in terms of probabilities. But the hold section actually is the sweet spot. So if the other two have 71% odds, the hold has 80% odds of a market advance when the Fed is absolutely doing nothing, which we might be in. 
right? You always, you don't know that until after it actually happened, right? So we might have, the Fed might be done and maybe they don't cut until June or maybe not even until next fall. But what you see is that hold area is actually the sweet spot. And then to the extent that the, you analyze the first cut, it's bullish regardless of the economic path for the equity market, which is really fascinating. So by the time you get to a first cut, even if you are approaching recession or are in a recession, it's usually too late to be bearish. So to the extent that you were going to get a bear market, um, it would be between now, if we're on hold, and that first cut. Because in some ways, stocks can offer you the clue. If we roll around into next year and we're in June and we're talking about the Fed cutting, the Fed does actually cut because they can, right? The why is more important. They can because inflation is actually tamed and real rates are a little bit too high for their liking. So they can actually cut without, you know, it being a crisis. So if you have that happen, you can look back as an equity market investor and say, well, what has the stock market done over the last year? And typically if it's up, that's a pretty good signal that there's a soft landing. The only exception to that has actually been the financial crisis. So when the Fed first cut, if you looked over the course of the last year, stocks were up 13%, but then obviously we went on to a very long, very deep recession. But that was the only exception. So to the extent that that is the exception, not the rule, one of the ways is to consider, well, what are stocks saying about what the Fed is doing by looking at the last year trailing returns? And so, I mean, this discussion of what the Fed's going to do and when and where the cuts may or may not come in, and actually maybe even the on-hold piece, you do have a lot of investors who are enjoying perhaps the bond situation because they are making something, which is new. The on-pause, does that, does that move people off the more attractive to bonds because at least you're getting paid to sit there or and it's, and it's safe? What, you know, how does that work in terms of movement. Yeah, the argument I get. So I think that bonds from a total return perspective are very interesting and they haven't been in quite some time. So you're generating a coupon and you actually are high enough from a real rate perspective that you could see cuts, which again, statistically, you know, leads you to a really strong total return profile with total return profile of volatility that looks exactly like equities. But if you are thinking as an equity, as an investor and saying, okay, I think it's likely that the Fed is to cut next year. And I do think that that's likely. I think that we should be open-minded to that. Again, I think that inflation is coming in lower than expected. I think that they'll have the ability to cut rates next year. And oh, by the way, even the dot plot says that they're saying, you know, 50 basis points will come out. Maybe it's not 100. Maybe it's later than we think, but it's likely the next move. So again, if you look back in history and you say, okay, let's look at all first cuts. The only time the bond market, and by bond market, I mean government treasuries, has outperformed the equity market is the time before that, if you were going into recession. All other instances, equity market returns have dwarfed bond market returns. So look, if you're thinking of a 60-40 benchmark and you're saying, well, I'll be overweight bonds and I'll be okay because I think bonds are much more advantageous this cycle, this is a word of caution to say that Nothing can really keep up with an equity market. Again, history, you know, historically speaking, I don't know what's, maybe it'll be different this time, but historically speaking, it's very tough for the bond market to keep up with the equity market if the Fed is cutting rates. That is fascinating. And we will leave it there because that is just brilliant. Denise, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. We really, really appreciate it. And we wish you and uh, your family a continued holiday weekend. Thank you. Thank you so much. Always great to be with you. 
All the best. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.